Um, this is going to be, I think, one of the most important messages that you've heard in a while in regards to kind of the foundation we've been laying here in understanding the festivals and why we seem to be that little corner of craziness of the church that is either viewed as maybe a heathen, not Christian, legalistic to whatever, because we recognize the, the festivals, the feasts of the Lord that the church has gotten rid of. And we're going to look at a couple of the verses that are probably the most common ones used to show us that we are not supposed to do these things. Now, with this said, I want you to understand that I realize much of Christianity does not recognize the festivals and the feasts, and I don't blame them for that. I absolutely understand why they see what they see. When things are so ingrained in our minds, it's tough to kind of start thinking differently. And these verses, when we just isolate them, absolutely make sense that we as Christians should not be doing these things. But when taken in context, not only within the chapter, but within the whole of Scripture, that is not what it's saying. But I say that to let you know that I don't have judgment on the church when they, they don't recognize this. Because they do believe that they're doing what Scripture says. And I think that's okay. But I also believe that there are blessings... The more we know Jesus, the more you're going to love him. And the more you understand these things, the more you see Jesus. You see, this isn't something in addition to Jesus. This is about Jesus. And I think that's the difference is the church, when they look at what we're doing and say, oh, they do the festivals, that's a Jewish thing. Or that's been done away with, so now they're legalistic because they're doing all this work stuff. That isn't why we're doing it. Uh, Logan had sent me a message to watch and um, <clears throat> went through it and we, we listened on our trip and I, I told my wife I wish that there wasn't an either or you're either putting you know this side or that side it's kind of like Calvinism there isn't you, you're not given an option you're either a Calvinist or an Arminian it's like no I'm not I'm neither but we don't get a third option I feel that's the way that the festival stuff is. You're either this Jewish, uh, you know, law-loving, legalistic guy, or you're antinomial, you're free in, in Christ. It's like, yes, I'm free in Christ, but yes, I love the law. I'm not legalistic. You see, there is an, an in-between answer and I think that that's what you have to understand is that the church doesn't see that. They see an either or. When I think that if the church would just listen to this, listen to this series, I think that they would begin to understand, oh, this isn't about doing something to earn Christ's favor. This isn't something that we're saying in order to be a Christian you have to do. This is simply truth and we're trying to follow truth and learn more about Jesus and who he is, and more of the scriptures. And these things help you do that. That's all this is. And so, um, 
let's look here tonight in Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 15 is what we're going to be covering and you're going to see that these verses have probably left one of the more negative marks on a Hebrew root movement or whatever you want to call it I don't know again I don't even have a term for what we are we're not Hebrew we're root we're not messianic we're we're Christians that's all we are we're Christians who just want to take the Word of God I don't want a label of a Hebrew root I don't want a label of any of these things because those all come with baggage I just want to be biblical Christian that's all but I think that these verses have done a great deal of building up that dividing wall that Paul and Jesus worked so hard to tear down between Jew and Gentile and so again uh, I, I think this is going to be one of the most important messages that we've done in a while to to get this understanding um, so uh, again for those listening if you want to hear more go to patreon.com forward slash creation instruction so anyway Galatians 4 8 let's start there it says this but then indeed when you did not know God you served those which by nature are not gods now the first thing we need to understand or identify is who is the you here being talked about well it's the church of Galatia now was the church of Galatia a Jewish church those that had been doing the festivals for years and years and years or are these Gentiles who knew nothing of them they're Gentiles aren't they and so these are people who didn't even know God before so keep that context because that's important when you did not know God clearly not Jews you served so that means they didn't know God but they were still serving somebody religiously spiritually they were doing pagan things because they were spiritual still they served those which by nature are not gods but now after you have known God now that you have come to Christ or rather are known by God how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage so if they're returning to something it couldn't have been religious festivals like Passover Sukkot Day of Atonement because these people didn't know God they weren't doing Jewish festivals biblical festivals they were doing and serving the other gods just like the Romans did okay the world was filled the Greeks the Romans all of them they served other gods but they were not you know the God of God of gods King of Kings Lord of Lords and so they're returning to what they used to do it says that these are beggarly elements it says you observe days and months and seasons and years today modern Christianity is going to look at this and say oh oh days months and years oh Jewish festivals no do you know that the modern Christianity today observes days seasons and years that are not Jewish festivals things like Christmas Easter Halloween 
Yeah. You, so if you're going to say that you aren't supposed to observe any of these, then, hey, Christian church, stop doing Christmas and Easter too. Okay? So, again, context is important here, but the, the church looks at this and they say, oh, see, they're talking about stopping biblical holidays. That is not what this context is about. He says, I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Now, not only were they being told by these Judaizers, as we've seen in the earlier verses, that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved, they were also, as is very natural, going back to their old culture. You, in applying that culture into their new knowledge of Jesus, thinking that that was making them a good believer, that it might help in their salvation, something like that. That's natural to go back to our culture. It's what people do. And I think that's why it's hard for people like us sometimes to stop doing some of these things that we have grown up with all of our life because it's natural. It's hard to let go of those things. And here Paul is coming in and saying, listen, don't listen to the Judaizers. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And don't go back to these miserable principles. And they're like, ah, but man, I love those. That's where our family got together. You know, this was a big holiday for us. It really meant something to us. And now they want to go back to it. Well, this debate over this verse right here goes back a long ways. And I want to show you throughout church history a little bit of how this verse was interpreted. And even what in modern Christianity, what they say it actually means. This is from the Epistle of Ignatius to the Magnesians. And this is going to show you the impact that this had on the church early on in church history. Ignatius is talking about Galatians 4.10 here. And this is what he says. Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner and rejoice in days of idleness. For he that does not work, let him not eat. So first of all, he's saying that what Galatians is talking about here is the Sabbath. Does it say Sabbath here? No. Not at all. It says... You observe days and months, but it doesn't say anything about a Sabbath. But Ignatius just thought it's talking about the Sabbath. And so he takes it out of context. And then not only that, but he says that the Sabbath is laziness, idleness. And then he quotes the Old Testament where it says that if you don't work, you don't eat taking it completely out of context, because it had nothing to do with the Sabbath. God commanded you to be idle on the Sabbath. So that's not, I mean, this is completely out of context. So we have different canons from the, can, uh, the Council of Laodicea from uh, the 300s. And Canon 37 says, It is not lawful to receive portions sent from the feasts of Jews or heretics, nor to feast together with them. In other words, if you were a Christian, in essence, it was illegal to receive food that was used, like, for example, a Passover lamb, or to feast with them, period, the, the Jews. The irony there is, is insane, because they don't want 
to seem like a Jew because the Jews follow all these laws. And so they set up a law. Yeah. They do things with Jews. See, the irony is amazing. Yeah. Don't do laws, so here's a law. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. exactly. Good, good point, Jordan. Um, it goes on, it is not lawful to receive unleavened bread from the Jews, nor to be partakers of their impiety. So this is kind of, again, giving you insight into what the early church was thinking. Now, um, these first two here, he's talking about things like Passover, is what we're seeing, the feast and the unleavened bread. Canon uh, 29 says, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath. In other words, you rest the Sabbath, you obey God's word, you become a Judaizer. In other words, legalistic. You, but you must work on that day. Not only do you not keep the Sabbath, he commands you to break it. Rather, honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, meaning keep the Saturday Sabbath, let them be anathema from Christ damned is basically what this is saying let you go to hell if you keep a saturday sabbath when does the council of Nadia see it like time period wise 300s okay. yeah i don't remember but yeah it was illegal to celebrate christmas in america in the late 1800s to early 1900s, somewhere in there. I don't remember the exact date, but it was illegal up to that point. Yeah. So what's fascinating to this, again, is not only are they commanding you to break the command, but they're saying if you worship or if you, you know, take a Sabbath rest, you're damned to hell. That would be like me saying, okay, I know that the Saturday Sabbath is the Sabbath, so if you go to church on Sunday, you're damned to hell. I don't believe that. Some of them do. Some of the Seventh-day Adventists believe that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. I don't believe that. But that's what they teach. And the reason they teach that is because it was the Catholic Church, by their own admission and their own doctrines, made worship on Sunday, and they say in their doctrines that Sunday worship is a mark of their authority, and therefore all Christians who worship on Sunday are under the authority of the Catholic Church. And so uh, they've got some good reasoning to think that. I just think that it's a little out of context and don't accept that. But nonetheless, that's uh, what we're seeing here at this time. So we have the Visigothic professions from 600s. And it says, we will not practice carnal circumcision or celebrate the Passover, the Sabbath, or the other feasts connected with the Jewish religion. So look at the impact that we got here all the way from Ignatius. This idea stuck and it continued to grow because of the Council of Laodicea, the Nicene Council, all of these things built up to where this is what we ended up having and what's interesting is that this last one here deals with special days and it isn't even Sunday that it's talking about in Galatians 4.10 days, seasons, years 
they weren't even talking about Sunday worship or Saturday worship. They were talking about these other things that they grew up with in the pagan church. Like I said, things like Easter, Christmas. Christmas has been built on a pagan philosophy, a pagan holiday of worshiping Zeus on December 25th or Ra on December 25th, uh, Mithras on December 25th. This is what was done throughout the ages. Now, that's actually what Galatians 4.10 is warning us about. You guys have these special days, things like December 25th. Don't go back to those miserable principles. God's given you other ones to learn of him, not for salvation. So there's still that aspect of the, the Judaizers were saying, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. Paul's saying, no. Salvation is from Jesus Christ alone, not because you're circumcised or not. And Paul also would say, no. These festivals, whether they be the pagan ones or the biblical ones, are not what saves you. So both would be correct there. Um, but again, why do we do pagan ones? but we look down on biblical ones. Which brings me to my next question. Who could be behind this evil way back in Galatians? The devil. And I think the devil is still behind it today to make sure that you, not that you do Christmas, because in doing Christmas that you become evil. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is he wants to keep you from being blessed by seeing the truth. His goal, he doesn't care if you do Christmas or Kwanzaa. What he wants you to do is not do the biblical holidays because he knows that in the biblical holidays, there's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's not me saying it. That's what the Bible says. What does Colossians, as we're going to see, uh, it, it says this, that these are a shadow of Christ. Not were are a shadow of Christ. These are pictures of Christ. So the devil's concern is that you just don't see Christ in these holidays. That's his concern. So I'm not so much against Christmas as I am for the truth, if that makes sense. So I think the devil is trying to keep us from these blessings. And that's why the church hasn't seen it. We see John Chrysostom. He said this, another early church father, some of the Jews who believed being held down by the prepossessions of Judaism and at the same time intoxicated by vain glory and desirous of obtaining for themselves the dignity of teachers, you just kind of see the venom coming from him as far as his regard of the Jews, came to the Galatians and taught them that the observance of circumcision, true, Sabbaths and new moons was necessary, and that Paul's abolishment of these things was to be ignored. He went south. You see, I agree that there were these Judaizers that came to the Galatians teaching them that they had to be observing circumcision to be saved. That's what Galatians is preaching against. But, 
these Judaizers were not teaching them the Sabbaths, the new moons, as necessary. Because again, these are Gentiles who never practiced them before. And Galatians is saying, you're returning to what you came from. They never did it before. So these Judaizers can't be teaching them about Sabbaths and new moons. Secondly, Paul's abolishments of these things had to be ignored. Paul never abolished them. We see him honoring them. And we'll look at some of the verses. Not necessarily of him doing them, because there are those verses that will show that as well. He wanted to get back by Pentecost and wants to get back to Jerusalem, I think, uh, by Passover or something like that as well in one of the verses. But anyway, um, it's just this, what he is saying here is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. He did not abolish these, and, he, and the Jews, the Judaizers, weren't even telling them to keep these. They were only talking about circumcision in Galatians. So let's go back to Galatians here. Now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days, months, and seasons, and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. You see, the Sabbaths are not mentioned. New moons, not mentioned. These are not Jewish days. I've kind of beat that horse to death, but I want you to see it here. They were not keeping Jewish holidays before they came to know Yeshua. They were keeping other ones. And let me tell you, the Greeks and the Romans and them, they had more holidays, more festivals, more parties to, you know, the Diana and, and the goddess of wine and Dionysus and all of They had more of those than the Christians or the Jews had biblical festivals. So they're returning to those things. So what about this as well? 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Paul says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you, are truly, since you truly are unleavened. Now, leaven is a picture of the flesh and sin and false doctrine. It goes on and it says, For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us stop doing the feasts. No. It doesn't say that. Yet, it's interesting, this verse is used for us to stop doing the feasts, but it actually is a command. Go look at it carefully. Therefore, let us keep it. Not with old leaven, not with old doctrine, not with old flesh, not with sinful things, but rather, it says, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, what is unleavened bread? He says, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, so that you truly are unleavened. Keep the feast with the Spirit of God, a new lump, a new creation in Christ. But keep the feast. So would the modern day Christian church say that, therefore let us keep the feast, they basically think that by doing communion, that's keeping the feast of Passover? Probably, but I don't know. I would say this, maybe they can justify it. I've never heard it put that way. They see the Lord's Supper is completely, they don't even connect the Lord's Supper to Passover usually. But when he says, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, they see that as saying, you're done with Passover, because not with old leaven. 
But that's not what this is saying. It isn't, he's saying the old leaven is that sin and the flesh and the yuck that we have in us. Now that you are a new lump, now that you've gotten rid of that sin, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, keep it with sincerity and truth. Keep it knowing Jesus Christ, ultimately, if I could paraphrase. So maybe I'll put it this way. Therefore, because Jesus was sacrificed, all the more we should keep these feasts not with lies and deceit, but with a repentant life cleansed by Christ in truth. That's what I see this saying. If it was meaning to stop, don't do these feasts. What do you do with the book of Revelation, Zechariah, Matthew, the fourth cup of you know, Passover? The fourth cup of Passover hasn't been fulfilled yet. What do you do with Zechariah 14 saying that when the Lord comes back, people will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover? What do you do with the book of Revelation? That is, when we go through the book of Revelation after this, you will see it's filled with feast imagery talking about those things. You can't understand Revelation fully without understanding these festivals. Clearly, there's got to be an interpretation problem if we're saying that this has to be done with. It was the expectation, don't forget this, it was the expectation of the early church to be going to the synagogues on, on Sabbath, on Saturday. Remember in Acts chapter 15, when he says, okay, you new believers, you Gentiles coming into the church, he says, Moses is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. In other words, you're going to go there every Sabbath. You're going to hear these things. Therefore, we don't want to overburden you, but you, you do these things. Protect your temple. Because we know you're going to be in the, the synagogue every Sabbath. That was the expectation of the Gentile. So, don't forget that as well. So, Isaiah 56, verse 3 This was prophesied that the Gentiles were going to come into Christianity over and over many, many, many times. Book of Hosea, all over the place. Even Isaiah 56, 3 says, Do not let the son of the foreigner, the foreigner, that's a Gentile, who has joined himself to the Lord, okay, who basically says, I want to keep the Passover. I want to follow your God. I want to be like Ruth. Say that your God will be my God. It says, saying, do not say, uh, who's joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, the Lord has uttered, separated, utterly separated me from his people. I'm not part of this. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me. And holds fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Any ideas maybe why then the devil would not want you to keep the Sabbath? These foreigners and eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me doesn't mean that they're not going to be saved if they don't keep the Sabbath, but it means they're going to miss out on a lot of blessings. Continues here in verse 6, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, 
to basically do what he asks you to do. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Keep in mind, he's still talking to the foreigners here. So did all of a sudden this change, all of these prophecies about the Gentiles coming into the church, which didn't happen until Jesus came, now all of a sudden, somewhere in there, Jesus has stopped doing the Sabbath? Because I don't find that in the New Testament anywhere. I find him telling you to stop doing other days, but I never see him saying, stop doing the Sabbath. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's what the Sabbath does, guys. It makes you joyful. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands here tonight, but I would suspect that many of you who have started to honor the Sabbath have already seen joy in the house of prayer. That you've already experienced the blessings that it has. Hasn't made you more saved than you were before. But it's given you some blessings. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. So, one of the things Tara was talking about today that I thought was a good point that I think even applies to this a little bit. Is she said, you know, you don't really pray to lose weight. It's kind of stupid. Because you don't just say, okay, Lord, please, you know, let me lose weight and now go live your life as if nothing ever happened, expecting God to just shed the pounds because you prayed for it. Like Mark said, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. <laughs> the point being is this, God expects you to have your skin in the game. And it isn't just about losing weight, it's about everything. Don't pray for patience. You pray for patience, God's going to give it to you. No, God is going to give you the opportunity to practice that. You pray to lose weight, God will give you opportunity to practice that. But he's going to expect you to do something, and then he will honor that. It is the same with everything. You can pray, Lord, please give me wisdom. I can guarantee you that if you don't read your Bible, you don't study it, you don't start observing the commands of God, you're not going to gain wisdom. God isn't going to just give it to you because you said the words. He's going to expect you that as you read his Bible, then he will pour it into your minds. As you exercise and follow his commands, he will give you the blessings of it. And he, you'll see the wisdom through it. I don't care what the prayer is. It's not going to come by you just saying the words. Now, can God do that? Yes. But I don't think that's typically how he works. God, give me a piece about this. Well, then you have to trust him. You're going to have to tell yourself, yeah, you know what? Yes. Now, he will be there to do that because he sees that desire in your heart. And it's the same thing, you know, for cheap grace or, or you might say cheap prayers. We use our prayer life oftentimes as we use for cheap grace. Oh, I'm in. You know, Lord, uh, thank you for saving me. Now, I'm going to go live my life as if there are no rules no obligations, no work to be done in sharing the gospel or anything else. I'm just, hey, I said a prayer, I'm a Christian, woohoo! No, that's cheap grace. And that's what we do 
with cheap prayers. God, give me this. Okay, woohoo! Now I'm going to go live my life and forget about it. I said a prayer, so I'm sure you're going to give it to me. No. When you become a Christian and you, you're under that covenant, a covenant always involves two parties. God made a covenant to you for salvation. You cannot save yourself, but because you are under that covenant, it comes with rules, regulations. You cannot be under the covenant of God and now go live your homosexual lifestyle as a drunkard and a blasphemer and say, well, I still believe in God. I pray at night. I don't care. You're outside of the covenant. You're outside of the rules. It's the same thing. If you're going to be a Christian, it can't be, Lord, save me. Lord, let me lose weight. Without you doing something to chase after that. And again, like I said, God could give me patience without me doing anything, but typically that's not how he works. Anyway, um, going back to Galatians here, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I want to look at that word observe because that's an important word there as well in the Greek. You have two options here when it goes to observe. Observe it in a good way or observe it in a bad way. So either in a positive sense or a negative sense. And what I want to show you here is what the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges says for this word observe. The whole meaning of the verse depends on the sense attached to this word observe. It is compounded of a verb, which means to observe, and a preposition, which implies that either the purpose or the method of observation is bad. The simple verb and corresponding noun are commonly used in the New Testament in a good sense, but the compound is never so used. In other words, it is never used this way in a good sense, positively. So what does it mean? The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges continues to say this, St. Paul is not condemning the observance of days and months and times and years but their misobservance. Okay, that's their interpretation. How are they doing it wrong? How are they misobserving it? It goes on. Compare Colossians 2.16, which we will look at here in a little bit. Where not the simple observance is con condemned, but the slavery which is involved. So not the act of doing it, but the act of thinking you have to do it in its being required for salvation and the dishonor which is done to Christ by adding to his perfect righteousness. So, we're going to look at the Colossians 2.16 here in a minute, but I want to give you a little bit more context when, it says, when it's talking about this here because there's a little more that I want you to see. It goes on, there's clearly no exemption here from the obligation of the observance of the seventh day. So this modern-day Christianity got it right on this. He's even saying the context of Galatians here is not saying that you're free from observing the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath. That's not what this verse is saying. The law of the Sabbath of one weekly day or holy rest in God, the seventh in the Jewish, the first in the Christian church, is as old as the creation. It is founded on the moral and physical constitution of man. So they got it right and it went south towards the end there. 
But again, they're coming from their bias of, okay, there's two Sabbaths, one for the Christian and one for the Jew. We've talked about that in past studies showing you that that's not the case. There is one Sabbath. You cannot make a day holy no matter how much you pray, worship, and do good things on it. That doesn't make a Monday holy. God is the one who sanctified the Sabbath day and made it holy. He made a day holy. It is holy regardless of what you do or don't do. That day will always be holy. You're not the one that makes Saturday holy. God did that. Okay? So, anyway, it goes on and it says, It was instituted in paradise incorporated in the Decalogue on Mount Sinai, put on a new foundation by the resurrection of Christ, and is an absolute necessity for public worship and the welfare of man. He's talking about the Sabbath. The Decalogue, is that according to the Ten Commandments? Yep, okay. yep. What St. Paul condemns is the observance of the day in a legal spirit, in compliance with the minute and childish prohibitions of the rabbinic system and as a matter of merit with God. So, I think that they're still mistaken in the sense that he is applying days, months, and years to Sabbaths and new moons. But let's say that they've got that right, and that this is the Sabbath day that he's talking about. It is a biblical festival in the new moons. it would fit the same context of what all of Galatians has been talking about so far. If these guys were by some chance saying, you've now got to keep Sabbath and Passover to be saved, just like you had to be circumcised to be saved, I would still disagree with that. And that's what they're saying here. I would agree if that is the context of it. Again, I think he's talking about pagan holidays, but even if I'm wrong, it's still not saying that you're not supposed to do them. It's saying you're not supposed to do anything as a means of salvation. And that's what this commentary is saying. They've put on a level playing field rabbinic Judaism in all its evils with God's word and all of its good and blessings. Rabbinic Judaism just twisted and added two. So get rid of the added two and leave the original. But what happens is, in their verbiage, both of them get thrown out. So, I can't help but ask, when it says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid of you for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. I can't help but apply this to modern-day Christianity. Now, modern-day Christianity applies that to me because I keep Passover. But I can't help but to apply it to modern-day Christianity. Because they are the ones that if you touch their Christmas or Easter, you better back up because you have crossed the line. They are the ones who are holding on to these man-made principles of the culture of the past that they are returning to that they hold so religiously that if you don't do Christmas, you, in their minds, they may not say it, but they're going to look at you as a heathen because you don't do Christmas. Yeah, how, the irony. Exactly. So let's look at this Colossians 2 verse 16 that 
the Cambridge Bible here was talking about. It says in Colossians 2.16, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Now, notice here we do have Sabbaths and we do have new moons. This verse is also used against us in saying almost like, which are a shadow of things to come, meaning now that Christ has come, don't do those things anymore. But actually what I see this saying is, don't let anybody judge you if you do these things because they're of Christ. They're good things. They are a shadow of things to come, not were a shadow, are. And the substance of them is what? Jesus. The substance of a festival, a biblical one, the substance of a new moon, and the substance of the Sabbath are all about Jesus. Why should I not stop? Or why should I stop doing them? Why should I not keep them? If the substance is Christ. It goes on to even say, let no one cheat you out of your reward. Reward for what? Stopping those things? No. By doing them and not being judged by it. Let me tell you, since we've started doing Passovers and all of those kind of things, I have felt judgment by the church, by my own family. Many of you have had that same experience. And this is an encouragement saying, let no one judge you in regard to maybe not eating pork or keeping Passover or Sukkot because these are a shadow of things to come. The substance is of Christ in them and you will have a reward. It says, let no one cheat you out of that reward taking delight in false humility in the worship of angels. Now is he talking about false humility and worship of angels? By keeping the festivals? No. He's saying intruding into those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You're going to see the context here in a second. But he's saying don't get cheated out of the reward of keeping these things in a proper way. But if you keep these things in an improper way, then you will become vain, puffed up. And let me tell you, in the Hebrew root movement, I've seen that happen, where there are people because they think, oh, you keep Christmas, I keep Hanukkah. That they get puffed up and think that they're better Christians than the mainstream Christianity. They judge the church, look down on the church, and they feel like they're better Christians. This is a warning to them. Okay? What I want to show you, though, is that this verse in Colossians mirrors exactly what Galatians 4.10 is talking about. Where Galatians was talking to the, about the days, the months, and the seasons, here it says festival, new moon, and Sabbath. It kind of it went from the, the pagan ones to the Christian ones here. These are the Jewish feasts. But if you lose the substance, Christ in these festivals, like, say, a modern-day non-believing Jew does, if they're doing these things and Christ is not the substance of it, it is a waste of time, it's a vain glory, it's a puffing up, it is useless. 
Absolutely. And they will be robbed of their reward. But the structure that he uses is the exact same structure we see in Torah in the Old Testament. It says that every presentation of a burnt offering to the Lord on the Sabbath, on the new moons, and the set feasts by number according to the ordinance governing them. In other words, look there compared to Galatians 4.10. Days, months, seasons. Or Colossians, Sabbaths, new moons, festivals. Those same things are mentioned. So, as we go and look at this, um, did I add the verse on here? Uh, taking delight, verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. Very important part there. It's not that the festival, the new moons, and the Sabbaths are bad. It's that if you do these wrongly, not holding fast to the head, and we know that as Ephesians talks about that the head is Christ, then you're going to have problems because keep in mind, this is verse 19. Watch what happens as we move into verse 20 to give you the context of all of this that you're seeing right now. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject themselves to regulations or yourselves to regulations? Same context. Remember Galatians 4.9 said the exact same thing. Now after you have known God or rather are known by God. Colossians just put it this way. If you died with Christ, you're now known by God. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? That word beggarly elements in the Greek is the exact same Greek word as used in Colossians' basic principles of this world. And notice that he's saying that you desire to be in bondage to them. So, now that you've come into the faith, why are you turning back to legalism? Or why are you turning back to pagan culture? That's what he's saying. Here in Colossians, he's talking about biblical festivals. In Galatians, which mirrors this, he's talking about the pagan festivals. And that's why I say that even if it is the Jewish festivals talked about in Galatians, all he would be saying is, if you're doing this to be saved then you're being cheated of your reward. You're being robbed of the blessings that are in it. Both Jews and Greeks have regulations. Even today, most non-Christians no, non have a set of rules in order to be good. Regulations that they feel that they must abide by to be a good person. I mean, test this and go out on the street and evangelize. When you, you know, are, you, are you saved? Well, yeah, I think so. Why? Why are you saved? Why would you die? If you died tonight, why would you go to heaven? Almost across the board. There are some that don't. But almost across the board, you're going to hear people saying, well, because I'm a pretty good person. Because they've already got this unwritten, spoken set of rules and regulations that they believe they need to do in order to be saved to get to heaven. 
This isn't a new problem, or I should say an old problem that doesn't exist today. It is still alive in the church today that there's some sort of good that you can do to be saved. And for those Hebrew root movement people who think it's by keeping the Passover and obeying the Sabbath that that's what's going to get you saved, you're in the same boat. Okay? You need Ray Comfort. You need the law of God to show you that you cannot be good enough to be saved. So, same Greek word here. He's telling us to turn away from the principles of the world. Not turn away from the Bible and its commands, but the worldly elements. Now to prove that, let's continue on here in Colossians 2. And you're going to see in the context, it says this, Verse 21, what are these basic principles or beggarly elements? He tells us, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Modern day Christianity says, oh, you don't eat pork? Oh, there you are. You are being applied to right there. Don't taste it, don't touch it. No, 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 no. Because it goes on and it says, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Is don't eat pork a doctrine of man? Not at all. That's a doctrine of God. There are all kinds of doctrines of men that are in the church today. You have to wear a tie to go to church. Or you're really not a good believer. You got a tattoo, you're not a Christian. I mean, I, we could go on and on and come up with, you know, some would say, oh, you drink wine, you have a glass of wine at home, oh, you're not a Christian. Right? All kinds of examples that are doctrines of men. The Jews had tons of those things. We've talked about that before. The Sabbath, they could only walk so many steps. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath. You couldn't make mud on the Sabbath. And so Jesus goes out of his way to break the commandments of men. But he always kept the Sabbath. He always kept God's rules, always broke man's. That is the consistency we see of the entire New Testament. And that is what Colossians is talking about here. So this is what the commentary that we were looking at earlier meant when he was saying childish prohibitions of the rabbinic system. Exactly what you were saying. Okay, or this is what Galatians is talking about when it talks about pagan rituals. Because those pagan rituals that the Galatians were doing, what, why did they do them? Because it made them feel holy. It made them feel religious. It made them feel like they were doing something good. So they're now coming into Christ. And it's like, oh, we used to do this to honor our gods. Let's honor our God, Jesus, doing the same thing. That's a beggarly principle, a worldly principle, a doctrine of man. So Galatians and Colossians are saying the exact same thing. Paul is not saying the Sabbath or biblical festivals are bad. He tells you to keep them. He's saying the traditions of men, the doctrines of men, the, the works righteous aspect or attitude that people have, that's what's bad. And that's the very same thing Jesus preached against all the time. 
Washing of hands is another example. Well, that wasn't in the Old Testament, but everybody was all upset because the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. Things like that. So, you don't do Christmas? Oh, you're, you're bad. You don't do Easter? Why not? Oh, are you not a Christian? Oh. Could that also then, coming back to that circle again, be a beggarly principle or a beggarly element or a worldly principle? Just about done here now. It was instituted, it goes on here in paradise, incorporated in the Decalogue on Mount Sinai, put on a new foundation by the resurrection of Christ, and it is an absolute necessity for public worship and welfare of man. What St. Paul condemns is the observance of the day in a legal spirit. That's just what I've been describing. That's what Colossians 2 said it was, and they got it right here. So, most Christians don't even know what a Passover Seder is but they know what Easter is. They know more about the worldly principles than they do about the biblical ones. Most Christians have no idea what Sukkot is all about, or even how Jesus is the shadow of that, or how that's a shadow of Jesus. Why not? Because they're too involved in the worldly man-made doctrines. Galatians 4.12, wrapping it up. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Notice that he has a trial in his flesh. Something in his body was not working well. Don't know what it is. Um, some think maybe it was his eyes. Some think it was a stuttering issue. Whatever it was, it was something that was visible to the people around him. Um, we also see here, he says, I became like all men that I may save some of them. Paul said that in Corinthians. He's saying this in Galatians. Same message. Okay. He says, imitate me because... I imitate Christ. In other words, do what I do. Did Paul keep the festivals? Yes, we see that he did. And now he's saying, follow me, imitate me. So Paul, by the way, was not some spike-haired, cool-dressed, smooth-talking, you know, white pants, white shoe-wearing preacher of today. It seems like, well, not seems, he wasn't even a good speaker. Paul even said that himself. So he's not even a good speaker, but he had truth. And so what I find, I think, important to see from this is that today I see in modern-day Christianity, we get pretty nitpicky because we say, oh, I just don't like his preaching. I don't like his voice. I don't like the wear. Uh, you know, I don't like the what he, the clothes he wears, or I don't like the fact that he has a tattoo, or whatever the case might be. We have to not be so worried about those things as we need to be worried about what's coming out of his mouth, the truth that comes out of his mouth, because as one of those podcasts that we were listening to before was talking about, that we have a tendency to 
overlook bad doctrine for the sake of good preaching, captivating, um, what's that? Charisma. Charisma. Yeah. There you go. The, the church prefers aesthetics over doctrine. I think that's true. And we have to be careful. And Paul was anything but aesthetically pleasing, it seems. He wasn't a good speaker, but he had truth. Yeah, we, it hasn't changed. Absolutely. And that's what Paul says, is, you know, uh, in Corinthians, when those others were coming and said that he was a weak speaker and all of that. Look at me. We're better. But Paul basically is saying he, that they received him despite his weaknesses for the sake of truth. And that's what we need to be as a church, is be willing to accept those who have truth despite their weaknesses. God uses those who are weak. Moses was not a strong speaker either, but yet he was one of the strongest of leaders, just as Paul was. Galatians 4.15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. What's interesting is the very fact that he says, you accepted me despite my weakness. He's just talking and then all of a sudden, he brings up the plucking out of his, their eyes for him. It seems like a weird thing to just bring up. And that's why some people think that maybe he had some eye issues. I don't know if they were, cried all the time or who knows. Okay, maybe he was a little cross-eyed. I don't know, you know, tough to look at. Whatever it was, it says that, you know, maybe perhaps that that trial or infirmity in the flesh could have maybe been something with his eyes. It, it just seems to be related. Who knows? Uh, but nonetheless, his infirmity was open for those people to see. And the last one here, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. I mean, God was speaking to him, gave him all these revelations. And he says, because of that, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. So here again, he's talking about it. It's in the flesh, and it says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So some say that it was a spiritual attack. I don't... I mean, I'm sure Satan was maybe behind it in some way, but being spiritually attacked through depression or whatever may not have been visibly apparent to everybody else. So I don't think it was just, you know, demonic oppression going on here. But he does say here, a messenger of Satan, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Boast in his weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so, going back to your question before, Deb, when we pray about healing, here he prayed three times for that healing to be taken away, and the answer was no. And therefore, he accepted that and said, I gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmity then. And we need to have that same understanding that in today where this idea of, you know, praying to be healed and all, well, you just weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith. No, 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 no. Sometimes you're not healed because God wants you to be used to maybe 
the same thing here, lest you be exalted above measure or whatever the case might be. We just have to trust that God is sovereign. He knows best and accept what He has given us and joyfully parade it, I guess. That's what Paul did here with his infirmity. God uses the weak. That's the way it is. So, Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that... Um, it doesn't depend on us or our cleverness or anything. It depends on the power of the Word of God. May you just continue to instill that in us, Lord. And as we said tonight, we're not just asking you to just magically put your Word in there. We, we just ask that as we go and seek you, that you would be found. That you would reveal yourself to us by letting that Word stick in our minds. Letting us have opportunities to speak it to share your love with others because we know, Lord, the good news. And that good news is that there's nothing I can do to be saved but believe and call on you, knowing that you have accomplished everything that needs to be done, knowing that our salvation is secure in you. And because of that, Father, we want to know you more. So open up the floodgates of heaven. Open them up so that we might see you in your word, that we might see you in these festivals. And as we take these steps of obedience to know you more, that we would be blessed and not be cheated out of that reward by, by doing it to be better than others or doing it to, to um, even think that it makes us a Christian because those things are not true. And so we thank you for these gifts. And we look forward to what you will do to reveal yourself through them. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.